Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast, as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at tprdfw.com. Lord, we thank you so much for the Word of God. We're so grateful that it doesn't change, that it's been your Word and steady and steadfast and true and unchangeable for generations, God, for thousands of years. We're so grateful for your Word that you speak to us through it. And we pray tonight, would you release to us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we could know you better, we could know it better, we could understand what's happening, that we would have the word of God be jumping off the page at us, that you'd give us clarity that we couldn't otherwise have without your assist. So Holy Spirit, escort us into clarity tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Book of Revelation, tonight's uh, message is entitled, The Spirit and the Bride Say Come. So this is a passage at the end of Revelation, for those of you guys who are somewhat familiar with that concept. But it's not just a passage, it's really uh, one of the major themes of Revelation, actually. The, the purpose of the book of Revelation is to get us, get the church to this point that we're going to read about, that we're going to look at a little bit. Um, these next few sessions that we're going to be doing, we're going to be looking at a lot of wrap-up points of the book of Revelation. You know, we spent a number of sessions at the beginning of this study kind of doing intro, and then we spent a bunch of sessions in the middle talking about the details, and here we are at the end of the book of Revelation, and I just want to make sure that we land it well. And so tonight, uh, in this uh, passage that we're going to be reading out of Revelation chapter 22, 17 through 20, I want to talk about it as a drama. I want to talk about it as a surprising drama at the end of the age, and I'm going to introduce the characters here uh, in this drama. There's some wild things happening in these short few verses here. So we're going to go ahead and read it. <clears throat> Revelation 22, 17 through 20. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. So let's look at the different characters in this play, if we can, because this is, if you've ever read this passage, I'm sure all of you have read this passage, but as you've read it, if it wasn't instantly making a lot of sense to you, it's because it's very complicated. These few verses are complex. Each phrase has a lot of meaning behind it. And if you just kind of read it like you're reading, you know, a, you know, another part of even another part of the book of Revelation. I mean, when you're looking at the seals, trumpets, and bowls, uh, while the details are uh, intense, they, the, the story kind of reads well enough that you could read a chapter and have a pretty good idea what you just read. But this passage is power-packed. There's so much going on in these short few verses that to just read it, you, I, don't, I wouldn't blame you if you walked away going, I don't know, just said, come, a bunch of times. You didn't really get the clarity on it. So that's my hope tonight is to help us with that a little bit. All right. So introducing the characters. First is the spirit. The conversation, as always, begins with God and his part. And so the Spirit says come. The Holy Spirit is saying come. So we've got in this play, we've got the activity of the Holy Spirit, the voice of the Holy Spirit, uh, the, the purposes of God. You've got all these different things going on wrapped up in this one little phrase, the Spirit says come. But it's not just the Spirit. 
It's the spirit and the bride. So now we're introduced to the bride here at the end of the age. Right in step with the spirit, we see the bride playing her part in the drama as well. And so it says that the bride is saying come. So it's not just the Holy Spirit in perfect timing. It's now the bride as well crying come. There's a, there's a perfect timing of it all. Okay, what else is going on here? Well, then you've got those that are given over to the harlot Babylon. And I want to give you a parallel verse or a, a connected uh, verse here, uh, top of page two, just so you can see it. The same theme is being given to us in Revelation 18, verse four, when we were studying uh, the harlot Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18. It says, then I heard another voice from heaven say, come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sin. So here we've got the come verse, or the, the phrase, come out of her. We've got to come back to Jesus, come out of her, stop walking according to those ways. But it's actually the same concept here uh, as what's being communicated in Revelation 22, verse 17, when it says, whoever is thirsty, let him come. So the one that's thirsty, the one that would be able to hear this message and know it's true, let them come if they're thirsty. I don't think that in this particular portion, it's talking about the lost because the lost aren't going to hear it. They're not going to hear the spirit and the bride say, come uh, at, at the initial you know, announcement. What's happening here is the, the lost, uh, we'll get to them in just a moment because they're mentioned next. What's happening here is it's all those that have been caught up in the spirit of the age. You just heard Sebastian give a, a plug on you know, what's going to happen at the end of the age. There's going to be the increase of wickedness. And one of the greatest portions of that that, that I think is actually the, the big owie at the end times. It's not actually the judgments. It's the measure of deception and how many will actually wind up going with the deception because it's, it's going to seem so good and right. Wickedness will be called good and goodness will be called evil in the generation that the Lord returns. So you've got an entire group of people that have been in the church at some point in their life and they've now been given into the spirit of the age at the end of this age. And that's where Babylon, the call there in Revelation 18.4, I heard another voice from heaven say, come out of her, my people, my people, the people that know me, the people that have walked with me in times past, come out of her. Stop walking according to the ways of the spirit of the age. Come out of her. And I think that it's actually the same cry here as whoever is thirsty, let him come. Let him come to Jesus. Let him come back. Let him come and drink deep. All of those that are hearing, if you're in Babylon, come out of her, my people. And it causes this stirring in the hearts of many. Then, then the, the testimony of the Holy Spirit is, okay, so now if you heard that beckoning, then come and drink deeply again. Come back to the Lord. Okay? But then you've got the harvest of the lost. That's the next uh, group that's wrapped up in this drama here at the end of the age. I'm just pulling phrases straight out of Revelation uh, 22, what, what was it, 17 through 20? That's this passage that we just read. Now we're looking at whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. This is now introduction to a lost person. Those of you who have not yet taken the free gift of the water of life, now you come. This is now the outcry. This is evangelism at the end of the age. This is the great harvest of the lost. They're wrapped up in this uh, end time cry, come Lord Jesus. They're wrapped up in this come as well. It says, hey, to all of you, whoever wishes, 
let them take the free gift of the water of life. It's, it's all the lost that are in the world that are going to be hearing the message and they're going to be invited in to take this free gift and to come to Jesus. So, so far, just to calculate or uh, kind of keep tabs here, we've got the spirit, okay? Then we've got the bride, Then we've got the church that's gone into Babylon that's being told, come out of her. Then we've got the whole lost world that's being invited. You also come and take the free gift of the water of life. And then we've got Jesus. Look at Revelation 22, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. It's Jesus. So you've got both the Holy Spirit and Jesus involved in this short little, you know, four verses or whatever. And, and both of them are playing a part. And Jesus, he's actually saying, I'm actually the, I'm the focal point of this whole thing. As you cried, come, I'm responding, yes, I'll come. But then you kept crying out to others for them to come to me. And, and I'm coming for them as well. This whole, you know, wrap up, Jesus says, he who testifies to these things. Just know, yes, I am coming soon. And I I just put in there uh, the one who testifies. This isn't another player in the drama. It's just a little bit more on Jesus. This term, the one who testifies, you might wonder, well, which one is that? Who, Who is it that's testifying? I mean, we've got a lot of us have got red letter Bibles, so it's written in red, but if it wasn't red, how would you know who it is? You know really clearly because Revelation 1.1 tells us that the book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. And he made it known to them by sending his angel to his servant, John. One of the things that will take place, even notice that must soon take place. Here's Jesus saying, I am coming soon. One of the things that's going to take place is the return of Jesus. It's the big one. It's our blessed hope. It's the whole point of the book of Revelation. It's it's the wrap up. It is the completion of the gospel message. The gospel message is incomplete if we leave Jesus in heaven forever. He, He lived sinless. He died for our sins. He rose again and he is coming back. And the coming back is actually the biggest portion of the gospel, which will take up the most amount of time in eternity. Once Jesus comes back, he's going to be back forever. That's billions times trillions of years. The time that he was here was a short blink. The time that he's been in heaven is actually a short blink. When he comes back, it's the fullness of the gospel. It's the very point. It's, the, it's our blessed hope. Okay, so what's the primary theme of this passage? It's come, but it's, it's layered. It's multi-layered. I just want to read it again, get you kind of thinking about it a little bit. The spirit and the bride say come. There's that first time. But the one who hears say come. That's the second. Let the one who is thirsty come. That's the third. Let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. It doesn't say come, but it really, in essence, it's saying it. Then it says, he who testifies to these things, Jesus gives the wrap up. Yes, I am coming. So this passage, it's all about this concept of come. I I love when... um, um, Caitlin was doing the announcement. She was talking about this upcoming return conference uh, in Kansas City, this IHOP return conference. And it's the twofold play on the word return. It's us returning to the Lord and us praying for the Lord's return to the planet. It's actually a play on Revelation 22, come. 
That's what the return conference, the theme is actually Revelation 22. Uh, whether they said that and did that on purpose or not, it, the, the language is clearly there. It's return instead of come, but it's the same idea. And so here we've got this multi-layered come. So let's look at what's happening here. Studying Revelation produces this come Jesus heart cry. Because as we read the book of Revelation, we enter into the pain of it. We enter into the, the uh, gap, the ache of Jesus' absence. And uh, we were told in the book of Revelation at the beginning, blessed is the one that reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those that hear it and take to heart what's written in it because the time is near. A big portion of that blessing, it's not the only blessing, there's, there's a lot of layers on that blessing, but a big portion of that blessing is our heart starts to engage in the divine storyline. As we read the book of Revelation, we're told this is God's future plan for the church and it's going to take place. As we read it, a big portion of the blessing that comes to rest on us is we enter into the storyline. It no longer becomes a nebulous, far off, mythical idea, the end times maybe. We actually enter into the storyline. You know, we pray around here often, Ephesians 1.17, that the Lord would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we would know him better. One of the best ways to know him better, not the only, one of the best ways to know him better is know what he thinks, know what he cares about, know what he wants, know what he's planning, because his plans are not divorced from who he, are, who he is. The, the, uh, the, his plans are an overflow, an outflow of who he is and what he's about. So to know his plans is to know him better. And so when we pray for the spirit of wisdom and revelation, and then you find yourself also simultaneously in a study on the book of Revelation, which we're told is the revelation of that man, Jesus, we actually get to enter into a greater measure of fellowship with him and who he is. But a big part of that blessing is that we enter into that storyline, and by doing so, we start to think the way that Jesus thinks about the end times. We start to want what Jesus wants as revealed in the end time storyline. And one of those things, in fact, it's the, it's the capstone is the church at the end of the age crying out, come back to the planet now. We're ready. It's time. And that heart cry only comes, I don't mean the prayer. Anybody can say words. But there's a difference between saying words and something erupting from within you. The only way that eruption happens is if you've entered into the storyline and you understand what he's wanting, thinking, and doing, what he's planning. Now, I just want to go back, just as a frame of reference, to the martyrs under the altar in Revelation 6. We remember that passage. We spent a little bit of time on it. But I just want to give you the, the context here. You've got the martyrs at the end of the age, and they're seen as like the coals under the altar. That's the picture that we get in Revelation chapter 6. So they are, they've uh, been martyred on the earth. They are now with the Lord in heaven, and they're pictured as these coals under the altar. And here's what they say. How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Now, if you're a dead martyr that's alive in Christ in heaven, you're no longer on the earth, you're alive in Christ in heaven, I guarantee you, you know the storyline. I guarantee you, you know the plan is Jesus is coming back. And you know that that's how everything gets wrapped up. <clears throat> These martyrs, in essence, are giving the exact same cry as the church that we find at the end of the age. Come back and fix it all. 
These martyrs are, in essence, saying the exact same thing. They're going, how long? Until you come, until you fix the problem, until you set up shop, until you resolve the issues, how long until you wrap up the age and you end this madness and the darkness? How long, Lord? In essence, they're crying out, come, Lord Jesus. But it's interesting that the martyrs under the altar, the answer to the martyrs isn't what Jesus answers the bride at the end of the age at Revelation 22. Now, these martyrs are being martyred throughout the period of the Great Tribulation and leading up. But when they cry, come, if you will, this is what they're told. They were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants were killed as they had been. So you've got this united cry of the martyrs in heaven at the throne room. They're right there under the altar. And they are crying, come back, like fix the problem, Look, judge the earth, return, return. And the response to them, and they, these are pious, they died for Jesus. The response is, not yet. That is really intense. But what we see when the bride says it at the end of the age is, oh yes, I'm coming. See, there's, a, there's a, a difference. There's a timing about maturity. Well, what is all this? Come back, Jesus. Come to us. Let us come to you. What's the language really all about? It's James 4, 8. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. The message of the book of Revelation really is let's draw near to Jesus. Let's give up religion and apathy. Let's enter into the fullness of who we were intended to be. Let's press ourselves in to know him deeper, to love him more, to run after him with abandonment. And the promise is if you will come near to God, God will come near to you. It's interesting because that's actually what's occurring at the end of the age in relationship to the bride. The bride has drawn so near to God that she can actually say come and he does it. It's like, it's like the biggest exponent. It's the biggest exclamation point, biggest bold letter version of James 4, 8. Come near to God, and God will come near to you. Draw near to God, bride of Christ, and Jesus Christ will come back to the planet. I mean, that's in the fullness of what's happening here. The bride crying out to her bridegroom. Now, this is an interesting thing when it says, the bride says, come reason it's interesting is because historically, this is not the way that the church has been predominantly identified or predominantly seen herself. Now, that's not a judgment against the church of the past. It's just a fact. It's not been the primary way that the church historically has viewed ourselves in relationship to God. Servants of God, even friends of God. There, there are many other ways, you know, uh, the family of God, the kingdom of God, the church of God, the body of Christ. But this concept that we are the bride of Jesus Christ has not been one that any generation in history has embraced and run with as the primary way that the church has seen herself. We will. We will before this is over. This is where it's going. The bride is the one that says come. It doesn't say the sons and daughters of God say come. It doesn't say the body of Christ says come. It says the bride. And there's something about that bridal cry that's different. <clears throat> the one who hears cries come. Part E. 
I'm just kind of giving you the breakdown of all these, each part that's crying out, come. What are they saying and where are they coming from? The one who hears this term and let the one who hears say come, they're not just some random lost person. They have to hear. They're hearing the voice of God. They're hearing the Holy Spirit. They're hearing the beckoning. It's the church that's paying attention. You know, hearing God say come, they're hearing it. And that the purpose of that is then they would turn around and they would say, come to the lost. They would then say, now it's already said that the bride says come. So we've already got the church in intercession, Jesus come back to Jesus. This is a different come. This is a come that says, ooh, we hear you. We recognize we're in the divine season. And now we're going to go out like, whoa, in evangelism. And we're going to say, now come to him. Jesus Christ is returning to the planet. Come to him. And it's a beckoning cry of the evangelist at the end of the age. It's the same group of people that the church is now crying, come. Okay? All right, now I I just put it on here just to give you the, the one who hears says come. This is the way that Jesus addressed the church in all the letters. At the beginning of the book of Revelation, you remember the seven letters? We spent some time there. It says this in all seven letters. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So when it, it's later in the same book and we see the same phrase, it's not talking about a different group of people. It's the same group. It's, it's Jesus actually pointing back, hey, remember seven churches? Remember I was talking to you earlier in Revelation and I was saying, hey, if you have ears to hear, pay attention to what I'm saying. Well, now I'm back at the end of Revelation. I'm saying, hey, if you have ears to hear what I'm saying, I've got some instruction. Say, come to the lost world. It is now time for that mass evangelism, the power of God resting on the evangelist in the most profound way that will usher in the greatest harvest of souls that the earth has ever known. There is a divine timing. Now, evangelism is always the right thing, but it's not been that anointed, but it will be because there's a time where in the divine calendar, God says, ooh, it's time. Say, come, and I'll put a little bit of sauce on it. I will anoint that cry. I will anoint when that invitation goes out in that divine timing, it will be, you know, like, like gasoline and a match. I mean, there's just going to be something very different about what happens there. <clears throat> All right. The one who is thirsty, let the one who is thirsty come. This is the parched are going to come They're They're going to come. This is every version of parched people. This is people that love God, that are parched because they've been so busy. It's people that have wandered off from God and and they're realizing the depravity of of their ways and they get parched. It's like the prodigal son looking at the swine food and going, why do I want to eat that so bad? Like, I, I am really hungry. I need God. It's also those in the lost world that are recognizing for the first time, maybe because the evangelist just said come and painted the picture in such a way that it created thirst. Thirst is our gift. I just want to tell you, you can do without a lot of things in this life. You're going to live forever, remember? You're going to live forever. So I hope that none of you die prematurely, but if you do, it's really not that big a deal. You're going to live forever. You can live without a lot of things. You don't want to live without thirst. You want to be one that is thirsty for the living God. Because he says, I will meet that thirst. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said it this way. He said, you're a blessed human being if you hunger and thirst. He said, you're one of the blessed ones. It's one of the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. You know, if you're not thirsty, you won't be filled. 
This is why we want to be thirsty. It's a bit of a, a, a conundrum. It's a little bit of a, a parable because you're entering into something that causes pain that actually promises blessing. But as soon as you get that blessing, you need to enter back into the longing for pain again. Otherwise, you're no longer thirsty. As soon as you're satisfied, you're no longer thirsty. So we want to both live thirsty and reaching and getting from God and then get more thirsty and get more and more thirsty and get more. You don't ever want to be satisfied. You want to constantly be reaching. But the promise is if you'll reach, you'll get. That's the draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. If you hunger and thirst, you will be filled. Just a bunch of verses. I give you a few others. The Lord loves this thirsty thing. Is his idea. Jesus is quoting the Psalms here in the Beatitudes when he says, you know, that blessed are the, those who hunger and thirst. He's actually, he's diving into the Psalms and other places that promise that the thirsty, the parched, will actually get something from God that the not parched, that the satisfied, won't get. So there's this, this the concept of thirsting for God is actually going to become, I don't know if it's going to be used, if that language is going to be used, but the concept of thirsting for God is going to become one of the most important things on the planet, one of the most done things on the planet, one of the most longed for things on the planet, one of the most spoken about things on the planet is this longing for God with a promise that God will return and give us more of his spirit, give us more of him. Okay. Well, let's investigate a little bit the bride's cry. I'm on top of page five, investigating the bride's cry. All right, so we know the bride says come, but at the beginning of the book of Revelation, the church isn't referred to as the bride. The church is referred to as the church. Remember I just told you about the seven churches of the book of Revelation? You know, it, it, Jesus in all of them, he says, he who has ears, let him hear what the spirit is saying to the churches. He didn't reference the bride because it wasn't being highlighted yet. That at the beginning of the book of Revelation, the, the revelation of ourselves in the storyline is still very much as the church, as the servants of God, as the ones that are in partnership with him, doing his will. But the revelation of the bride is one that is gonna grow in this hour. It's one that is growing now and will grow and reach the fullness by the time that we reach the end of this age. We will be a praying bride before this thing is over. You know, sometimes I look at where things are at, and you can kind of get a little bummed sometimes. You're like, oh, wow, another scandal. That's not good. You know, man, in the church, it seems like we're just kind of barely limping along. Let's look at the church in some other parts of the earth because sometimes our church in our home country is struggling a little bit. Sometimes it can be a little discouraging, but I want to give you something that is very encouraging. We know the end. The end is the church will be a praying bride. She will be in full-on partnership. She will know who she is. She will love God in fullness. We have a lot of promises about the future. This is a profound thought process. We're actually going to enter in. Catch this for a second. Think about how things are in the church right now, whatever degree. And we always want to do our best to be realistic about how things are and never to rail against God's church. You just, you don't ever want to be in the angry boat. You know, ah, these Christians are in church. You just, you want to get rid of all that. That's just bad. It's, it, it's, it's bad for your soul. It accomplishes nothing. And actually Jesus is like, hey, uh, it's like my girl. You're kind of, it's like my wife. You're, you're kind of talking bad about my wife right now. And you're part of that. So this is confusing to me. One of the promises that we've got is we're going to enter into fullness. We will. So imagine the church living in 100% of Ephesians 5.17. I pray 
that you may have power to know this love that surpasses knowledge and that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. The church will enter into the fullness of the revelation of God's love for us. The church will enter into the fullness of our love and expression back to him. That is the destiny and the future of the church. These verses, we don't want to mistake them and go, well, God didn't really mean it. It just means that we got access to it. You know, I mean, you know, the spirit of the bride said, come, I guess a few people will probably feel that way at the end of the age. No, the hundred percent of the church will be in fiery, hot, passionate intercession. We'll know who we are and we'll be in fellowship with God in the most profound way as a bride connected to the bridegroom. That's the future. So we don't want to look at how things are now and try to make sense of eschatological promises. We don't want to look now and go, oh, well, these verses that talk about the end of the age, we're not experiencing those things yet. I guess they're not real. I guess it just means they're partial. No, they will be full. We're impartial right now. We're growing up. We're maturing. We're working out our salvation with fear and trembling. We have not arrived, but we will. This is the future of the church. We're headed this direction. This really will happen. Next, the bride is globally unified. To me, that is the most... Awesome and wow, that's a big faith moment right there. A unified church at the end of the age. 38,000 denominations coming together and we're all on the same page. It will happen. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians 4. Again, I want to get you another picture of this will happen. Imagine the church operating like this at 100%. Right now, I don't know, we're maybe at like 16%. All right? We are headed for 100 Ephesians 4, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, we will. Jesus is going to have a perfectly yoked bride. You know, it was the Lord that inspired Paul to say, don't be unequally yoked. Jesus is, I promise you, he's into that. He's not wanting an unequally yoked bride like Oh, Father, really? That's what I got? Okay, I'll just put on my happy face. We will be equally yoked. We're not right now. We're, we're on our way. We're moving that direction. I just want to tell you, your salvation wasn't so that you could sit and be a bump on a log. Your salvation was so that you could enter into more and more and more of what God has for you. And you will, the church will, become mature and attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ and reach unity in the faith. This cry at the end of the age, it's a unified global cry. The bride, not, you know, one-fourth of the bride or the bride over, you know, in this part of the world. or that. It says the bride, the one, the church on the planet. The church on the planet will together in intercession cry, come. That is profound. And that's where things are headed. Unified intercession. The level of unity that's going to require, the move of the Holy Spirit, the nudges of the Holy Spirit. I mean, what if we're all sitting around doing our own different things on Sunday mornings if it still goes that way as we near the end? Probably won't. But let's pretend that we're all still in our Sunday morning gatherings, okay? And all of a sudden, we're about to do our thing. You know, this guy's about to preach this. This guy, you know, this worship team over here is going to do this. This girl over here is going to minister and do that. All of a sudden, everybody in all the church is like, whoa, we're supposed to intercede for something right now, and I know it. And everybody in the church, there's no arguing. Everybody's like, I got the same thing right now. You're like, 
I don't even believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry, God's talking right now. We got to do it. And all of a sudden, the church is in unified intercession. There's going to be such an assistance of the Holy Spirit to help us in this. It's not going to just be manufactured. It's not going to just be social media. You know, everybody puts out the post. There's going to be a movement. See, the Holy Spirit is taking us to fullness. We're not going to get to fullness without a whole lot more of the activity of the Holy Spirit in our inner man. A whole lot more working within us. The bride is, uh, bridal identity is partnership. It's not servanthood. I just want us to understand that. Listen, we're, we're, we're in a season where the church is in a maturing state and we're actually going to grow up in our calling a little bit, a lot of bit. I just want to read you what Ephesians 5 says. Christ loved the church and he gave, herself, gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her back to himself as a radiant church. He says, yeah, I know you're a hot mess. I'm going to fix you. And then I'm going to present you back to myself so we can get hitched because I'm not going to do that whole unequally yoked thing. It says, I will present you back to myself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or blemish, holy and blameless. This is where the storyline's going. This is where we're headed. This will actually happen. Bridal identity is partnership. We will be in partnership with Jesus. We won't be, you know, servants merely or friends merely. It's bride and bridegroom. It's a couple walking together. The byproduct of decades of partnership. This is, when we read this whole thing, the spirit and the bride say come, that doesn't happen overnight. It's the byproduct of decades of partnership. Now, those decades, I think, I think we're on the early end of those decades now. And it's going to keep getting better and better. As the culture gets darker and worse, as the world gets darker, as the sheep and the gro- goats, as, the, as the, uh, the wheat and the tares grow together, as darkness increases, so will the glory of God in his church. It's both at the same time. It's not one or the other. It's, it's the craziest storyline you can imagine. The evil is increasing and the pressure's with it. And then also righteousness and participation and acknowledgement of who God is. Decades of partnership and intercession. So this is what this looks like. Right now, I think we're still at the very early stages of whatever these decades are. Is that two, three? I don't know. But whatever that is, we're at the early stages of that partnership and we're learning a little bit about intercession. We're learning a little bit about prayer, a little bit how to partner and how to flow with God. We're still at the early stages. It's going to escalate. God will have a praying church. There will be a praying church. It's the only thing that will exist at the end. God is training us up, inviting us in, and as we grow in lifestyles of prayer, as the body of Christ graduates more and more into our reality, our understanding that we are called to be the house of prayer in the earth that as we kind of start to go a little bit further down that path, we're partnering with the Lord in intercession at levels we never have before. We're going to start seeing the Lord stirring. I mean, I'll just give you a great example. I love the partnership. And this is still, on a scale of one to 10, it's still got to be a one or maybe a you know, 0.5. I love the amount of partnership across the body of Christ in relationship to how much prayer was going up for the ending of Roe versus Wade. There was so much prayer from so many different groups because there was something that was hitting the church that was like, you know what? I didn't grow up thinking about this or I wasn't a part of that group, but there's something about this that's like 
stirring in me. I got to pray against this. This is just wrong. This is just wrong. We, we, can't, uh, we can't make it federally, you know, uh, legal and supported to abort human beings. We just, we can't do that. And there was something that was stirring in the heart of the church across America. And so you got all these different groups that were thinking all these different ways and uh, disagreed on all these other points, but we're praying and we're praying and we're praying. I don't know that there's been too many things that were prayed for by more groups. Maybe revival. We haven't seen that one yet. We will. But my point is, we're still at the early stages of being introduced to Holy Spirit-led intercession unto big purposes that God has. We're going to grow in this. We're at, a, we're at a level one right now. We have no understanding of where this is going. But by the end, we as the church will have become so proficient in praying the will of God that a moment is coming where the bride says, come. It's a prayer. And Jesus goes, oh, okay, yeah, sure. Here I come. And he actually comes. That is the craziest thing. That is partnership. That is years of partnership. That is just, that is so much maturity in the place of unified prayer that we haven't even touched, we haven't tapped into. We, I'm, I'm saying words, and I know I'm rambling and not making any sense, because I don't have any revelation of what this is going to look like in these next steps. I'm just pained by where we are right now, but I'm also a little excited because it's better than it was. So we're taking steps. I just throw it in there. <clears throat> that partnership will include praying in the end time judgments. You know, when we get to that point, it's going to actually be the will of the Lord. We're going to be able to look at it in the Bible and go, we know what's next. We're supposed to partner with God. We'll actually be praying in those things. We'll actually be in partnership with the Lord for all of the purposes. I mean, just to give you, you know, whatever, just a simple, you know, uh, comparison. If the Lord says... Pray for the sick that they may be healed. Then we see a sick person, we go, be healed. Well, let's pray for you. Let's, Jesus said in the Bible, we should pray for you. you know, James 5 says we should pray for you. So we do what the Bible says. Why is it any different when we know exactly what God says he wants to happen tomorrow? Well, if that thing tomorrow is revival, we have absolutely no qualm praying for it. What if what God wants to happen tomorrow is the second trumpet? But it's in the Bible and it says it. We're actually going to be in step with the Holy Spirit with no anger in our hearts. We're not going to have a, yeah, that's right, get them people. It's not going to be like that. We're going to actually be in bridal partnership. And there will be years building up to the return of the Lord of us practicing, of us learning how to discern the voice of the Lord and, and pray the things that he once prayed. Okay, I'm going to hurry along here. Okay, bottom of page uh, six, growing up into our calling, the church entering into the fullness of the global ache. Here's the thing. Don't focus on prayer or fasting. Focus on absence causing ache. Here in uh, Matthew 9, 15, Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. If you catch the tone of the passage, this is Jesus describing when I'm gone, there's going to be an ache created in the church. There's going to be a gap, a longing. I am going to actually have my church enter into the fullness of that ache before I come back. It's not like they're going to, if, if the ache is at a level, you know, 100, they are going to ache at a level 100. 
They are going to actually feel the fullness of my absence and the fullness of my longing. It's part of what causes the cry, come, Jesus, come. It's an ache. It's not just come, Jesus. It'd be good. It's in the Bible. We read it. It's not an unemotional cry. It's an ache. It's fix the big problem. We need you back here. We want you. We need you. There is ache. You said, how can the friends of the bridegroom mourn while the bridegroom's with them? But a day is coming when the bridegroom will be taken away. And then they'd fast. They'd mourn. They'd ache. They'd reach. We are in that. We've been in that for 2,000 years. We need you back. The church will actually enter into the fullness of that ache. I think that is going to be both exhilarating and painful. Right now, we feel a little bit of that. I think as the times increase, the pressures increase, that ache is going to be magnified in our soul. And that's actually from the Lord, that we will feel that fullness of that ache. The wrap up at the end of the age is the church will actually be crying out to God with right motives, in step with the Holy Spirit, with righteousness, with brightness, with instruction, the church will actually enter into our identity. Look at Isaiah 62, said it this way, they'll never be silent day or night. Give yourselves no rest and give him no rest till he makes her the praise of the earth. This will be the, the, the reality of the church. This isn't a neat phrase out of Isaiah 62. It's not just a passage that we use to recruit intercessory missionaries. And boy, do we use this passage to recruit intercessory missionaries. <laughs> It's not just that, it's actually a proclamation of what will be in the earth in order to produce the return of Jesus to the planet. The church will be in that ache, night and day. The church will be in that ache, feeling it, crying out to Jesus, crying out. Give yourselves no rest, give God no rest until he fixes the problem, until he brings Jesus back. We will be growing in our identity as a bride. Now I'm just gonna give this to you here, just a couple thoughts here and then we'll wrap up. Proof of a worship movement. You know, the plan all along was Matthew 21, 13. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called, will be, future, prophecy. My house will be called. I, it will actually be called from heaven, and heaven doesn't lie. Heaven doesn't, you know, cut corners. Heaven will actually identify the church and the earth as a house of prayer. Now, I don't mean house of prayer the way we do it. I mean the real version that we're trying to figure out. Right now, house of prayer in the earth is still in its immature phases and stages. We're, we're learning. What does that mean? What does that look like? It's probably a little bit of what we're doing now and probably a whole lot cooler and better and more in sync with the Holy Spirit. But we're on, we're, on, we're reaching. Jesus said, I got news for you. At the end of the age, you're not going to be reaching anymore. You will have attained it. My house will be called house of prayer. It will be. That actually will be the reality. This is the future of the church. What we get a picture of in Revelation 22, when we see the spirit and the bride say come, is we see a mature bride that has entered into the fullness of all the things that she was supposed to do, all the things she was supposed to become. And we see that her prayer is powerful and effective. She cries, come, and he actually comes back. The church at the end of the age will have been operating as a functional house of prayer. And again, I don't mean what we're doing here at TPR. I think, I think there's a lot of things we're doing right now that are still very immature in our understanding of how things go. So when Jesus said, my house will be a house of prayer, he wasn't talking about what's happening at 1503 Nora Drive. We're still trying to figure it out. But whatever he did mean when he said that, the church will be it by Revelation 22, verse 17 and following. The church will be that. There will be a global symphony. There will be a global prayer movement. 
This is our hope. This is where we're going. Revelation 19.7 says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. The truth of where we're headed is we will be ready. We will be making ourselves ready. There will be many pressures that will aid us in that maturing process. But we will be ready. By the time it's time, the church won't be behind. The church won't be, you know, uh, you know, second class. The church won't be meddling, you know, with sin and immorality and confusion and identity crisis. The church will be a mature, spotless bride who has made herself ready. And at that time... Jesus will come, and the wedding of the Lamb will actually happen. All right. Well, let's break up into groups. Uh, Caitlin, how many groups we got? Five groups. Five groups, six, seven. So if you're one of my group leaders, put your hands way up in the air and leave it up for just a moment. Caitlin, can I have you move over here? Uh, yeah. Okay. John, you stay there. Caitlin, why don't you move right here? Luke, stay there. Daniel, why don't you come over here to this back corner? All right. And then uh, groups of, uh, what did you say, five to seven? Six to seven. So if you got a group of more than seven, try to get some people to go to a different group for the discussion, okay? Let's break up into groups, and then we'll come back and we'll talk here. All right. Okay. Well, we'll go ahead and transition now into uh, Q&A time. I'll repeat the questions for those that are watching online or get this later. Uh, why don't we start over here, Luke? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, the question was, so there's 38,000 denominations, and they don't much interact. It's not like they're all against each other. There's just, there's not a lot of unification. There's not a lot of working together. How do we get from where we are now to unified uh, bride at the end of the age? A great tribulation. Uh, it's, it's actually one of the most essential reasons the church must be here during the great tribulation so that we can experience those pressures. And you know, there's not, I don't know all the ins and outs of denominationalism in China, but in the underground church in China, there's no denominationalism. Uh, they're all in the foxhole together. The difficulties are great. Uh, the pressure is great. And the concept of all these different uh, division points, and, and I don't even mean division like I'm against you on this doctrinal point. I just mean disunity in the most basic sense of there's no connectedness. The church in China, the underground church in China, is very unified, is very connected through apostolic leadership, and it's a lot of that is actually attributed to the rise of the church in the midst of great persecution and difficulty. And so the Great, uh, the great Tribulation is going to have a profound impact on, I mean, I, I made the point when we were talking earlier, I was teaching earlier about... Sunday mornings is kind of how we do church right now, by and large, you know. Uh, I just think so much of that is going to shift in pressures, and I, I just, I don't think it's going to be helpful for everybody that's a Christian uh, to be findable at buildings that are all registered online. Uh, I think there's, I think there's going to be some problems with that concept as we near the end because of persecution and I mean, threat of death, threat of bombs, threat of all sorts of things. Um, so I think that things are going to kind of look a lot different. And uh, there's going to be a lot of need for relationship and interconnectivity. And, you know, in all honesty, we've been, as a church across the earth, we've been so unanointed that we all argue and fight over our one little bit. One little thing, one little revelation, one little endowment of power, one little moment of revival that we had in our denominational history. We all kind of bicker and argue about that stuff. But as we move towards the end, that's all going to be 
dumb and nobody's going to care about that. And we will have the grace of the Lord resting on us to do the works of the kingdom and to love each other. You know, God is love. He's going to anoint us to love. And so in the midst of the pain and the problems and the difficulty, the Lord is going to endow the church with a significant increase of love that's going to actually cause us to see the trite, petty issues as trite and petty. And we'll go, who cares about any of that? That doesn't, I love you. None of that, you had the same dream I had last night. Let's go together. You know, the, the Methodists, the Baptists, and the Pentecostal all walking together going where they're going. I mean, and so, uh, so there's just going to be a tremendous shift in the expression of Christianity Christianity in the earth. And so that's going to be a, a big piece of how denominationalism and disunity and this group against that group, it's, there is going to be such an embracing of the greatest commandment and such an embracing of the second greatest commandment. There's going to be such a move of love in the body of Christ that all the things that currently divide us, they're just going to seem silly uh, because they are. And we'll see them that way and go, oh, I just love you because you love Jesus. Um, so, But the pressure is going to be, in my opinion, the greatest contributing factor to how we come to our senses a little bit. Um, so um, it's going to be really awesome. Okay. Uh, so, um, so related to this dialogue, you remember I told you earlier uh, when we started that if you just kind of give a little casual reading over this, you just kind of read it. It's like, hey, come, and then these group come, and then you kind of move on. It's like, okay, I guess that's over. You really got to stare at it. You got to think about this as a drama. Really what's happening in verse 17 through 20 or 22, whatever the, the passage there is, it's really the telling of the entire end time drama. It's really the entire end time drama, but it's all the characters growing up into the fullness of what is encapsulated here. The way that this ends is the church is praying for the second coming. So this in its in the in the biggest uh, you know moment of uh, where does this fall in the chronological you know timeline? This is occurring right before the seventh trumpet, because the seventh trumpet is the last trumpet, and that's when Jesus comes back. And so the church is actually crying out, "Come back to the planet!" For the first time ever, because you've never come back before. You came, but you've never come back. This is the comeback moment. But it's really telling this, the narrative of the end of the age. It's, it's talking about where we are now and the steps we'll be taking to get there. It's talking about how, how lost so many will become in the midst of the fray of all the difficulty of the generation that they need to be beckoned to. No, come back to him. Come. It's telling an entire end time storyline. But in the, in the moment of... Come, Lord Jesus, and Jesus says, "Okay, I'm coming." What is that? That's the second coming. Uh, but it's it's this this drama that's unfolding to help us to understand much of the context of the entire end time storyline. So, um, that help ish, okay, um, Andy. So in the context of the end time drama, the events, the judgments and such. Okay, so the question is, uh, in relationship to who this, again, context, Revelation 22, and really the whole context of what I just gave in the answer to the last question. Uh, whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. So it's, just, it's this evangelistic, like, if you want it, this, this, the free gift of the water of life is available to you. But the question that was asked is kind of give a little bit of, you know, the, what's going on that in that hour people would be responsive instead of hardened of heart. Um, well, as, as we've read, um, there's so many passages in Revelation, this was a different session that we covered, that actually talk about the people that are growing in hardness of heart are only going to continue to double down. 
they're going to get more and more hard uh, of heart. All those that have taken the mark of the beast, it says that they can't be saved. So it's not talking about those that have taken the mark of the beast uh, up to this point, because it says that they can't be, they won't be, they will not repent. It says they refuse to repent of their witchcraft, their murders, their uh, immorality. So they, they will refuse to. But there's this other group that hasn't taken the mark of the beast yet, and they don't love Jesus yet. And that's the group that's, that's in the process of all this. And that, that group gets narrowed as the uh, end time storyline goes on. I want to spend just a minute on that because it's important to understand it. The day the Antichrist pulls off his mask and says, I'm the Antichrist. Everybody worship me now. I'm God. You got to worship me. It's like the worst day in human history. The day he makes that announcement, 100% of the people who are going to take the mark of the beast don't take the mark of the beast day one. There's a process. There's a governmental system. There's, there's things in place. So the total number of those that are going to take the mark of the beast, they haven't done it day one. It takes time. There's all the different organization and government. And I mean, the very fact that it's like that said, if you, if you don't have the mark on your hand or in your forehead, you can't buy or sell. That's going to be a process of people showing up at the grocery store and going, I haven't taken the mark of the beast. Oh, I, but it's day five. It's not day one. It's day five. They show up at the grocery store. And they're like, oh, I want to get some food. And they're like, well, you got to take the mark of the beast. And then some will and some won't. And so that, there's a process, okay? So the reason that that matters is because as we, as we go towards the very end, there are going to be people that are going to be getting saved. And that total number hasn't happened until the end. There are going to be people being martyred. And that total number hasn't happened until the end. Revelation 6, the, the souls under the altar. There are going to be people taking the mark. And that number hasn't happened until the, full, uh, until the end. So there's all these different groups that does allow for the wiggle room of a great harvest, which is going to be occurring in the process of all that. There are going to be many, many people that are going to give their lives to the Lord. I, I have lots of reasons why I believe it'll be a billion plus souls at the end of the age. And so... I mean, you're talking about a great harvest. You're talking about a, a, a number that will, you know, potentially eclipse the current number of people in the kingdom. I mean, we're, we're talking about a great number being brought in. And so when the power is going forth, people are going to be looking for answers. People are going to be looking for, you know, what, you know, what is, wh where do I find my supply? It, it's going to be so much more obvious we're living in a spiritual fight to everybody at the end of the age. The, the, the people that are worshiping everything in wickedness, they're actually fellowshipping with demons and happy about it. They're like excited about the spiritual power they're getting from fellowshipping with demons. They will be realizing, oh, this is a demon. This is a good thing. There'll also be all those that are like, that is so bad and dark. I don't want any part of that. My friend started doing that. I don't like the way he looks at me anymore. And, and they're going to be like looking for light and truth. And the church is going to be operating in a greater measure of authority and unity and power and prayerfulness and togetherness. You know, part of the reason that in the West, part of the reason the church has so little impact is it's as a social society, as a social club, as a unit, it's so disjointed and doesn't meet very often and people are bored. But there's coming a time where the church is going to be together, like in a foxhole kind of a concept, together always, like in the book of Acts, sharing what they've got in the natural, sharing what they've got in the spirit, sharing every, and that's going to be very attractive. And in the context of that, we're going to be saying, come join us. It's not just come to Jesus, stay on an island by yourself. It's come with us to him. It's come into the community of God, come into the household of faith, come be a part of what we're doing. By the way, we're multiplying food. That's how we avoid the grocery store. 
You know, I mean, we're, we're healing the six. That guy, that guy almost died the other day. They cut off his arm. We just grew it back. That's what we do here. We operate in signs and wonders. So it's like, come all you who are thirsty or who got your arm cut off. Just come on in. We got you. Got you covered. So there's going to be power and anointing operating that is going to make the church the most attractive thing, but it still won't be a hundred percent sway by any means because the Antichrist is going to be operating in power. And even before the Antichrist, the decades of Babylon that we're already entering into, that's going to be the spirit of the age just drawing people in. So the allure of both darkness and righteousness is rising right now. Uh, I'm, I'm in intercession just personally. I'm like, God, come on, help us out here. It feels like the kingdom of darkness has got a leg up right now. Like so much wickedness is happening. Anoint your church. And I think that the Lord's answer is, I love that prayer and I'm gonna. And so let's just keep growing in that. So great question. Daniel, <laughs> you just couldn't help yourself, could you? <laughs> Uh, so the, the question is, um, you know, in the midst of the difficulties, the uh, unity is going to rise because so many petty arguments and things are going to be recognized as just really unimportant, you know, secondary issues that really just don't matter. But Daniel asked, kind of leading in a little, um, is, is, our, is our prayer of the increase of the spirit of wisdom and revelation, Ephesians 1, is it going to work? Are we finally going to get some of that? And is that going to have an impact? Absolutely. Uh, what's going to be happening is we're going to find that of the 38,000 denominations and all the different groups and whatever, as we march towards the end times, all of us are actually going to be taking significant steps closer to Jesus. And what's going to wind up happening is the distance between us is going to be shrinking. The distance in our theology is going to be shrinking because we're going to be growing in understanding. And while this one's starting point is here and this one's here and this one's here, we're all going to be walking because it's one bride, it's one church. We're going to be walking together towards Jesus. And we're actually finding some of each other along the way and going, Oh, Hey, I didn't, I thought you believed this and this. Well, actually we've, you know, we're thinking this way now. And, and, uh, and actually I've got a piece of information that'll help you see things a little clearer. There'll be just a lot of things that'll bring the church into, into that unification. And so I think that one of the secret, uh, you know, trophies on Paul's shelf is going to be up in heaven is going to be Ephesians 117 that we've all been praying like crazy for, you know, in the permanent in America for the last, you know, 20, 30 years. And who knows how many more decades we've got and the church praying, God, give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we're operating with God thoughts, not man thoughts. We're operating with discernment, understanding, with truth, with, that we would look at the word of God and we would see it the way you wrote it instead of seeing it through our lenses. And, and we're going to be entering more and more into that. We've got to believe that if we pray, God does stuff that if we don't pray, he wouldn't have done. We got to believe that prayer matters. And so us praying Ephesians 1 uh, is going to be a significant way that we actually get to where it is that the Lord has us. So it's, it's all of that. And, and there's probably five more or a hundred more factors that are going to be helping the church march towards our purpose. Um, so excellent question. All right. Well, worship leader team, whatever, come on up here. Good job. Thanks, Tyler. What's that? Huh? Did I get everybody? Did I miss somebody? Okay. 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 I didn't mean to. You all forgive me when I do stuff. Just help me out. Okay. All right, Lord, we just thank you so much for your word. It's awesome. It tells us the future. It's really cool to know the future. We pray that you would help our hearts to be increasingly engaged in your narrative, in your plans, and you'd help us to be increasingly submitted to them and to one another and to your, your purposes. Lord, we love you and we ask you, God. As this concludes this teaching from the prayer room. 
For more resources, please visit our website at tprdfw.com. Thank you.